Hello, uh, this is Michael Farragher, and I want to thank you once again for joining us Between the Borders. Uh, today I'd like to talk to you less about the why. I think we've had quite a bit of thought on the why, uh, and sometimes even the what. Uh, but we haven't had a whole lot of discussion on the how. Part of that might be that I covered a tremendous amount of this in my book, The American Insurgent, but I would like to at least have a brief rundown here on the podcast. I was taking a look at some other stuff today, and it popped into my head that people don't necessarily see what's going on with a lot of these groups. Um, uh, for example, how can Hamas or the PLO retain any sort of public support while being terrorists? On the one hand, let's let's table the fact that certain parts of their society actually appreciates what they're doing. They like the violence, or they like the end game and think the violence is acceptable. Let's table that. But what they do is not necessarily what we see them doing. And I'm not in any name, way, shape, or form defending terrorism, but the PLO and Hamas run food banks. Uh, they help a lot of the locals. And that provides them with not only a sense of legitimacy, but the neighborhood sees them as, at least in some ways, helpful. Uh, even the Daesh, the Islamic State, does this sort of thing. If you take a look, after they move in, uh, behead, murder, whatever, everybody who disagrees with them, they impose their own will, yes, but then they fix up the power grid that they might have broken themselves, but they restore the infrastructure, they restore normality, and they provide options for people. And that right there is part of their technique. It's not benevolence, it's tactics. You take a look at several of the other, uh, several of the other groups that we have trouble with. Uh, street gangs. Street gangs provide a lot to the local community. Some organizations like the old Black Panthers did a tremendous amount of good. And the old Black Panthers weren't the worst group in the world. Yes, they were a terrorist group who killed a number of people. But unlike the new Black Panthers, which pretty much have kill all the police on their webpage, I am not making that up, they started the community level. They had a thought process that was accessible uh, to their community. They were people of the community fighting for the community. That is how a lot of organizations get their sort of grassroots support. Similarly, a lot of these uh, services provided are services that provide for people who are generally at risk or otherwise are having problems with uh, the local establishment not taking care of them. Uh, once again, I've covered this, but when you have people who don't think the local government can take care of them, and by government I mean any local power, um, the government, friends, family, whenever the local group of people cannot provide for their own, and another group is capable of it, people tend to flock to the group capable of protecting them. And that is a tremendous um, motivating factor for why a lot of these groups 
flat out say the government can't help you, the government can't defend you, your friends can't help you. Only we can protect you. Only we can save you. And you see that not just in terrorist organizations, street gangs and the like, but you see that a lot with, um, with cults, with abusive relationships, uh, with political parties. They want to tell you that they are the ones who can help you, so they separate you from the groups you already have. Once you have no one but them, then they can move forward however they feel. And while public support is really what any organization lives and dies on, there are some financial considerations. When you take a look, for example, at executive outcomes performances in Sierra Leone, they were running, I believe it was over a million dollars a month, for a hundred combat veterans and a Hind D helicopter. Now, that gives you a substantial amount of force, and it's well worth the money. But where exactly was that money coming from? Now, at the time, it was fairly obvious. I'm not getting into the conflict in Sierra Leone. But there's always someone willing to foot the bill, if you're hitting their enemies. France gave a good amount of support to the American Revolution because, well, France and England weren't exactly the best of friends. So the enemy of my enemy at least gets my weaponry, right? The Soviets did it quite a bit. Whenever the U.S. was involved in an area, they had no problem supplying whoever was opposing them. That's why their weapons are widely, widely found in areas like Korea, Vietnam, um, Cuba, anywhere that was not a friend of the United States, they were happy to supply. Contrawise, we supplied the... Uh, the Mujahideen and various other groups in Afghanistan to fight the Soviets. And that's where you learn that the enemy of my enemy really is not my friend. A discussion for a different time. But, once again, it also works on a smaller scale. During the protests against Governor Scott Walker of Wisconsin, there were thousands and thousands, tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars rolling in for supplies for food alone. Uh, Saudi Arabia donated several thousand dollars, or I don't believe the government, but people, uh, Saudi nationals, uh, donated a tremendous amount of money to purchase food for the protesters. When you take a look at that protest, the people out there, they weren't going to work, they weren't paying for food, they weren't, you know, they didn't have long supply chains. They had to get all of this money and all of this food from somewhere. And at some point, people provided. Now, again, it's a minor thing. That was a protest, but it shows that uh, people are always watching. Groups are always watching what's going on. And when they see someone doing something that they support, uh, most of the time, there's money for it. If you are willing to do what they want to do, there's money for it. It's not quite soft power. Uh, soft power is when you find an organization and you get them to believe what you believe in. Because when you pay someone, once the money's gone, they're gone. When you put the gun to someone's head, the second you're not looking, uh, they'll stab you in the back and or leave. But if you make them a true believer, they will spend their own money, they will find their own motives, and they will recruit more people. 
Once you convert them into wanting what you want, they can run on their own without your support. Interestingly enough, this, uh, this soft power concept, under different names obviously, is not unique to governmental or even interagency operations. Uh, it's used a lot in the private sector, the commercial sector. One of the many things that they've done is a process called shared savings in the chemical market. The original way that they sold chemicals was you bought X gallons of a precursor, you used them, and hooray, we're done. Uh, shared savings instead pays the chemical supply house per unit that is produced. Uh, so if they use a gallon of precursor or a drop, the chemical supply house makes the same amount of money. Now, they're not going to be losing money unless they're poor negotiators. They don't understand the product. But what it does is it gives the chemical supply house, which previously only wanted to sell you as much as possible, uh, an incentive to sell you as little as possible to get the product done. Now, this means they might find better processes. Uh, they might find ways to produce less waste. And generally speaking, it means that now instead of one organization looking towards efficiency, there are two organizations. And this increases the profit margins of both, organization, both organizations substantially. And this is not simply the chemical supply house getting off selling you less product, but this means that both groups can pay less, use less product, and produce the same amount of product at the end. Um, this provides incentive for everyone to pull towards the same direction, and that is the same sort of soft power that you see when someone attempts to convert someone not only to an action, but to their root beliefs, to their root cause. You see a lot of this in uh, organizational politics. For example, you used to see a lot of communists in colleges. And that's not because the college kids are communists, but it's a fertile ground. And once again, part of that was um, simple choice by the, the college kids, which that's great. You know, make your decision, run with it. That's the point of a democracy. On the other hand, the Soviets really pushed for this. They pushed for not only getting the students, but getting the faculty on board. Because if they believed right or wrong, they would teach people who would then believe right or wrong. I had a gentleman come to the door just a little earlier. Again, something I've touched on in American Insurgent. He wanted to canvass the neighborhood for, um, for a Democratic candidate for a position that opened up because, unfortunately, our representative passed away. Now... Here's something that you have to understand. It is currently about 20 Fahrenheit out there, and the past couple of days have been below zero. It is not great weather. And why did you show up at my door? Well, you can make the argument he's canvassing the neighborhood, and he certainly was. But I am in one of the least affluent neighborhoods in this city. And this city and this county, I believe, were something like 
uh, Republican turnout in the last presidential election. I'd have to take a look. It was definitely in the 90s. Anyone who knows this area is very certain that leans very heavily to the right. This gentleman not only pointed out to me, and he had some valid concerns regarding uh, not just tax credits, but actually paying foreign organizations to come in and do work. Taiwanese multinational, actually. And he wanted to make it very clear that because people don't want to vote in these elections, uh, it would be a very low turnout, meaning that my vote would be disproportionately uh, effective. And looking at that, looking at the neighborhood, now bear in mind, I'm not sitting in one of the more affluent neighborhoods as well, so I can't I, I can't make the statement that he won't be canvassing those neighborhoods. But this is not a place that you'd necessarily uh, expect to see people who voted Republican. Now regardless, uh, the gentleman on the ballot I know personally, and I would not vote to stay on Survivor. So that's another thing altogether. But this is the sort of thing you get where he came here he selected me as someone who he thought would be on his side. I've received only Democratic phone calls in the past as well. Uh, this, is, this is a neighborhood which you would expect to poll left, which says something about the way they expect uh, the left to perform. It's, I'm not going to get into that any further. We've covered public opinion. Uh, we've covered a bit of financing. And, of course, there are always alternate revenue streams, uh, organizations willing to deal drugs, weapons, and such on the side. Any contraband are more than able to supply their own public relations division, let's call it. So, now we have to take a look at stuff that we're not going to see a lot in our own personal lives, knock on wood, uh, but materiel. So when you consider the amount of weaponry in a lot of these regions, uh, you see a lot of illegal firearms in attacks in France and England. You see a lot of explosives everywhere. And virtually everything that you see is regulated. And some of it very, very sternly. If you take a look at Afghanistan, they have completely uh, banned ammonium nitrate fertilizer which is a component of one of the more popular uh, field expedient explosive mixes. Uh, it is a component of what destroyed the Murrah building in Oklahoma City. And once you start getting into the more complicated things, uh, true uh, automatic weapons from government stocks, uh, real explosives, these are things that you don't simply go to the corner market and throw down your credit card and purchase. Food, vehicles, all that. All that you can purchase openly. But contraband, uh, you have to go through other channels. And some of that is simply smuggled in. Uh, some of that is aid from other nations. And some of that is private industry. I saw an interesting video on Forgotten Weapons regarding a... Rhodesian FAL. Uh, the FAL was the weapon of choice for the mercenaries in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, and for a number of good reasons. 
not the least of which is that the South African government was supplying them. And what they would do is they would mill off all identifying markings and they would send it in. Uh, it was a covert action, which I will probably address in the future. I have a podcast for it, but it is not to the quality I'd like. They'd send these in because uh, they were, well, in the words of Ian from Forgotten Weapons, there but for the grace of God go I. Uh, South Africa was not doing well, and Rhodesia was sort of the, uh, the tip of the spear for rebellion. You also have uh, the private sector. Now, Fabrique National was not willing to sell the FALs to the Rhodesians. They certainly uh, did not want to harm themselves over the fact that there were arms embargoes on that nation. And they probably weren't questioning why they were selling all these weapons to the South African government. Uh, the government does what it wants to do. I mean, if they want to store it all for a rainy day, they do that. I mean, there are massive stockpiles of weaponry on this planet. If they want to all throw them off a bridge or, you know, put them in a container ship and sink it, Fabric National doesn't care. And user certificates are good. It's going to a real source. Bang. Uh, but there are other nations, uh, other governments, other uh, companies that don't care. They'll sell to whoever they can sell to. Uh, there were actually a large number of uh, rather distinct anti-material weapons that were shipped to Iran that ended up in Iraq. And you, know, you have to question, at what point was the intent broken? At what point did the manufacturer, government, or whatnot not actually understand where it was going? Did they care where it was going? And this circles back once again to France supplying uh, the you know, the American patriots, the American rebels, whatever you want to call them, is that they wanted something done, and their return on investment was England being destabilized, England losing the colonies. It could be as simple as a company wants money. Uh, it could be as simple as, well, my drug dealer's coming from Colombia anyway, and if he's caught with, you know, 300 kilos of cocaine... He's going to get just as bad if it's 300 kilos of cocaine and a few rocket launchers. And tell you what, bring me a couple AKs, some Semtex. So long as we have smuggling across borders, we will have these things come in. And so long as we have deep pockets uh, funding any given rebellion, revolution, protest, whatnot, there will be access. There is no, uh, There are no two ways about it. There is always one other major uh, thing that we have to look at, which is becoming, I would argue, more and more popular, uh, but I don't have enough data to make any, any concrete claim on that, and that is what you would call lone wolf terrorism, which when you're not discussing, uh, when you're not discussing terrorism in and of itself, you need to really question that, uh, that moniker. But lone wolves, end of statement, does not sound quite as uh, definitive. It's not quite so easy to understand. From there you get groups, uh, <laughs> by definition not groups, uh, but individuals like the alphabet bomber. 
who decided that since he could not open a brothel, uh, he was going to murder people. I wish it was more, uh, more complicated than that. And that really appeared to be what his point was. And he was actually pretty bright. Not, not just bright, but savvy. He would go and pretend he was a mute, so he wouldn't have to answer too many questions without thinking about them. He talked to chemical supply houses, he talked to uh, intelligent people he was working with, and he determined, A, how to make explosives, B, how to properly represent himself not as one person but as a group of people, and C, feel uh, this minor reign of terror that attempted to convince people that there were chemical weapons being sent to Congress. Uh, there weren't. Whether or not he knew they were ineffective was another question altogether. But he did kill a good number of people by bombing uh, terminals. Uh, I believe it was subways. But he would put explosives in lockers and boom. And much like the Zodiac, he ended up taunting the, the newspapers and the like in order to gain more widespread acceptance. Uh, acceptance is the wrong word. Uh, notoriety. More widespread notoriety. And things like that continue on. Um, you have... This is getting out on a limb, but please bear with me. Uh, you have swatters these days. People who will uh, play Call of Duty or whatever on Xbox Live. And they get angry and they decide, oh, well, they're going to find somebody and they're going to call uh, the SWAT team in that municipality and claim there's a hostage situation. We actually just had a fatality not, so, not too long ago from a completely, uh, completely unrelated victim. He was shot by one of the SWAT officers who, in the situation, I can't judge, but he got jumpy and he shot him, period. And that falls onto the fault of the person who put them in a bad situation. As happened in Milwaukee. Milwaukee? It was Wisconsin University. I'm not sure. If, I think it was Madison, actually. Uh, back in the 70s, a group blew up a building which was supposed to be empty. Well, it wasn't. Uh, they were charged with second-degree homicide because it wasn't necessarily premeditated they wanted to kill this man, but the logical conclusion of blowing up a building is a fatality. As such, they were charged and convicted with second-degree homicide. When you call a jumpy police department and tell them that their lives are going to be in danger, but they have to respond to this thing, and somebody makes any wrong move, well, you knew the probable outcome. That's why you called it in. I mean, nobody ever calls the Salvation Army and says, hey, these guys could really donate for it. Actually, they do. But that, that's just borderline standard harassment techniques. That's just, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. These, uh, these individuals, they don't have the overhead. They need a certain amount of uh, individual knowledge in order to pull off these things. But these days, the Internet has so much information that you could figure out, you could start from nothing, absolutely nothing. You could figure out how to uh, make your own glassware to do chemical interactions, 
Learn how to make your own expe uh, field expedient explosives. Uh, make an effective bomb. And figure out where to place it and how to do all these tactical things just by taking a look at the internet. Now, this is going to be uh, somewhat dark on my behalf, but um, fortunately, some of these recipes are wrong and will kill you if you attempt to use them. And to be honest, I'm not against uh, homemade bomb makers getting bit by their own weapons. That seems to be... Usually, it's stupid kids uh, playing around with things that make loud noises, and I get that. But sometimes when people want to harm other people, taking themselves out first is not such a bad thing in my mind. But all this information is out there. I mean, that was sort of... I keep coming back to it. That was sort of the point of the American Insurgent, is this is all open source information. I added a bit to it by the fact that, you know, I do have a master's in intelligence. I did do some analysis on it. But by and large, what I found is what anyone can find. And that's just in English. That's just what I managed to dig up. And it's, it's amazing. And it gives these small groups... I'm sorry, it gives these individuals a uh, tremendous amount of uh, efficacy. Now that I actually am getting into the small groups, uh, you see Amshun Rinko Rashidenis. Uh, Again, I apologize if I completely slaughter the pronunciation of all of those things. Uh, they were well-off small groups that did their own thing. Uh, Amshin Rinko did sarin attacks in Tokyo. They were uh, basically covered by being a religious organization. Uh, the Rashijenis, I believe, were also a religious organization, but did some... Uh, they had a biological warfare program going here in the States, and I believe the net total effect of their campaign were uh, three hospitalizations. And I am really okay with that lack of effectiveness. Generally speaking, that is uh, how these organizations get their legs under them, how they get their funding, how they get their material. And it is a very, very bare-bones view. Um, once again, more information is available in the American Insurgent. If there's uh, anything else that I can bring uh, to this discussion is that these techniques don't just work uh, for hate groups. These techniques do work for any political action group, uh, be it good or ill. So if you uh, feel the desperate urge to do something, to, um, to end hunger in your community, uh, to uh, whatever your, whatever your nonviolent political uh, leaning is, uh, please, I mean, take this information, think about it, and realize, yeah, we could get people together, we could convince them that this benefits both of us, and there are always people willing to put forth the money if you have an organization and a plan that actually works. And once again, I'm, I think I'm going to steal this from here on out. Uh, as uh, Yatsa Rubin said, I think we should all continue pursuing peace as if there was no terrorism. 
we'll, we'll combat terrorism as if we're not still pursuing peace. But we should all consider that we should pursue peace uh, without regard to the fact that people will always oppose us. People will always seek to use violence. And that, frankly, is a job for another division. Take care of the peace. Let the violent take care of the violent. We will, we will figure this out at some point. But the first thing we need to do is we need to sit down, we need to take a look at how and why, and we need to get there first. Uh, we need to show the people there is hope, and they're not trapped by these organizations. One last, uh, one last story. Uh, I believe this one is from uh, How to Break a Terrorist. Uh, it's a book on interrogation techniques and, uh, well, it, it's not a how-to manual. It's somebody discussing how they were actually used. And uh, while I'm talking about great books that nobody's paying me to show, uh, Enhanced, Enhanced Interrogation by James Mitchell is one of the best reads I've ever had regarding enhanced interrogations, uh, legality, history, so on and so forth. Moving on. Uh, from How to Break a Terrorist. Uh, this gentleman owned a radio store prior to the Iraq War. and I'm sorry, um, there are too many Iraq Wars at this point. Uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. So he, unfortunately, was targeted by several of the originally repressed, uh, originally repressed sectors of Islam and lost his business. He, to the best of my knowledge, was not involved in anything except it was simple racial violence. Well, sectarian violence. And a group came to him and said, hey, we'd like for you to, uh, to do some work for us. And at the time, uh, he wanted grandchildren. His son married a woman who could not bear children. And that was his only son. Uh, his wife was uh, past the age of menopause, and the uh, the religion and the region both allowed him to take a second wife. Well, the second wife was a young woman. She was young. She wanted the best out of life, and she consumed a lot of money. Uh, he needed the money because he desperately wanted a grandchild. So he said yes. A little while later, he learned that this was AQI, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and that he was working with them on suicide bomb fests. Now, at this point, if you're convicted of suicide bombing attacks in Iraq, uh, you are put to death, period. And he was already stuck. He had no way out, so he continued to make these uh, make these bomb vests because he had no way out and this was the only way that he could see to uh, keep his family safe, to keep himself safe, and to have even the, uh, the concept of possibly having a grandchild. Now as he was uh, subject of an interrogation and he was making bomb vests, we know how his story ends. Uh, if you want any further information, uh, feel free to read um, how to how to break a terrorist? 
I'm afraid I don't have the book here. I can't get you the author's name. Alexander, I believe. Uh, we will never get rid of the foreign powers who are willing to fund people who stand against us. Uh, we're never going to be able to get rid of the individuals with the means who wish to fund people to stand against us. And we're probably never going to stop people who want to stand against us. But what we should do is we should take a look at every other aspect. Uh, the people who are dragged in the situation, the people who think that uh, we, as the law-abiding citizens of the United States, cannot protect them. We need to get there first. We need to convince them we can protect them. And we need to give them options. Options other than crime, other than hate, other than violence. And by and large, we've done all right with that. But one of the largest problems is there's a barrier to entry on all of this. And not the least of which is people don't know that these services are provided. And that's where entire organizations have sprung up simply to tell veterans, hey, you have problem A, here's an organization to help deal with it. Because for all the time and effort put into these organizations, they really are terrible at finding the people they need to help. When someone walks in the door, they're usually pretty good. But they can't find the people they need to help, and the people they need to help can't find them. And all in all, that's where we end up with whoever steps in first ends up getting these people uh, on their side. Even if they don't believe in the cause, these are people who have no other option or at least are being told they have no other option. If you leave, you're done. If you leave, we'll hurt you. We'll kill your family. Um, no one loves you but me. Uh, whatever, whatever the line is, these are people who are preying on other people. And this is how. This is how good people get hurt. This is how these organizations start. And now that we've seen the why and the how and and even the who, even the who, we can start seriously considering uh, ways of interdicting, ways of stopping these things before they happen, of, of trying to keep people safe without needing to get violently involved. I'm Michael Farragher from Between the Borders. I'd like to thank you for joining us once again. Uh, we do have our Facebook and Patreon accounts, our our uh, podcasts are up on iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, we also have a Stitcher account now uh, that is optimized for mobile if you don't want to uh, download anything. Uh, the links and information uh, to all of these are available on BetweenTheBorders.com. Uh, please contact us if you have any feedback. Uh, if you like it, please let us know. If you dislike what we're doing, if you preferred the shorter format, once again, please let us know. We're trying to dial in exactly what will be most helpful for you. And if there's anything else we can ever do for you, if you have any questions, uh, any, any place you want to go forward from here, uh, please let us know. And as always, please stay safe.